Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow daters. My guest today is Vivek Ramaswamy. Vivek is the executive chairman of Strive Asset Management and previously was CEO of Royvance. He's also the author of the best-selling books, Woke Inc. and Nation of Victims. Vivek, welcome to World of DAS. Good to be on. It's been a while since so we've been planning to do this. I'm really excited. You stepped down from Royvent to do more commenting about society and culture. Do you think CEOs owe it to their companies to kind of check some of their politics at the door? I think they do. That has actually been the central thesis of much of my commentary and scholarship and book writing. That's what the first book, Woke Inc., was all about. I think that there's one caveat I'd add to that, though, which is that I think if it is possible for a CEO to distinctively speak in their capacity as a personal citizen, but without having any commingled impact on their business or use of their business voice or resource or customer relationships to force people to adopt their perspectives using their business to do it, I think that's actually the key, then I think in theory, I'm okay with it. So you're just a private citizen and you give a little bit of money or you care about a cause and you go to a dinner or whatever it might be. Totally. Or local volunteer at a local civic event or show up at a political rally. All that's fine in your personal capacity. But I think when you start to force your employees or your customers or using basically your market power to foist your opinions onto others. Because now all of a sudden you've amplified that voice to a thousand X or something. Yeah. And I think there's two reasons why. I mean, one is the classical reason is that, okay, when your business itself, when it's not the CEO, but Coca-Cola itself taking a stand on Georgia's voting law or Disney itself taking a stand on Florida's legislation last year, there you're diluting your focus as a business. You may be taking steps that harm your business. That's the classical reason. But the reason I'm actually more concerned about is the reverse is that We should not want, in fact, we did not want, much of corporate law is set up to prevent corporations from exerting too much influence on civic discourse in our democratic body politic, that we live in a one person, one voice, one person, one vote system. And when you use corporate power with all the benefits of limited liability and everything else that society bestowed upon corporations to make products, when you misuse that to wield muscle in the marketplace of ideas, I think that starts to be a problem. That's why I draw that distinction. But if you're really strictly in your personal capacity, you're a human being. The cheating, if you will, I'm using that colloquially here, not in a legal sense, but the cheating is when you use your market authority or your corporate authority to somehow wield greater moral authority on questions, how and whether to fight climate change, racism, whatever it is, that every citizen's voice and vote out of count equally in, in a true debate. Obviously, you can lobby for things that are good for your business. You want to change a rule in the government or something like that. You want to lobby for it. How do you know where to draw that line between, okay, I'm just lobbying what a traditional business would do to I need a tax break or something like that for my local plant in North Carolina to actually doing something that is more policy oriented? First of all, the purist in me, I'm not speaking as a former CEO or a capitalist or anything like that, but just as an idealistic citizen. I don't love the existence of lobbying, okay? I do think much of the political system is captured and turned into a charade of 
monkeys that jump how high they're told to jump by the people who fund them. And I don't think that's good for anyone. So I don't love that. But now as a realist operating in the status quo, you acknowledge that that's the way your competitors play a game. You're going to have to play them. And frankly, we see the, I mean, this is wearing my day job hat at Strive, the effects of how captured the entire asset management industries, flows of pension funds, et cetera, by BlackRock and others, State Street, Vanguard, and others who have captured the system through effective government capture over the last 15 to 20 years. So it makes it very difficult actually for new competitors to compete. So on many levels, even from a pro-capitalist perspective, I don't like regulatory capture or lobbying. But you're asking a much more practical question in the day-to-day of today. If you are a CEO and find yourself in that position, how do you keep it straight? I think the question is a really simple one. Are you doing something that helps your business sell products and services more effectively to your customers? Because that's the ethos of a business. You either make a product or service. That's it. It's the whole ballgame of your business. <laughs> product or service. Do you sell your product or service more effectively to customers in virtue of taking any action you do? If yes, great. You're on the right side of it. If not then you need to really wear a different hat as a citizen when you engage. And I say this intentionally, you as the CEO have to look yourself in the mirror and ask yourself which hat you're wearing. And it's really tempting to tap into your authority because you're in a position of authority when you're running a company or whatever, to channel that authority to think that alone makes you more fit to offer your view on something that doesn't relate to your business in your civic capacity. Now, I'm one to talk, you would say. Many people who have said, and I think it's a fair point. I have much less so than in my initial days of biotech CEO, but much more so in my post-biotech career. More recently, I found in Strive. I do speak pretty openly about my views on social and political questions all the time, but I don't tell anyone that my views do matter more just because I've had a successful career as a capitalist. I prefer that my arguments stand on their own in my capacity as a citizen. And then it goes to the nature of the business too, as much of the criticism I'm offering is directed directly at competitors like BlackRock and Vanguard, who we're aiming to compete with and the nature of how they've already politicized that debate make the alternative ideas that we're offering part of our product. So that's, I would draw some of the distinctions and how I think about it, but it's a complicated question for every CEO to think through. What should the framework be? Let's say I run a big media cable operator or something like that, and I've got a controversial channel one of my 10,000 channels I offer or whatever, one of them is controversial. Some of my advertisers of my other channels say, hey, I don't want you carrying this. How should I think through some of these decisions if you're giving advice to a CEO? There's harder versions where this becomes difficult, but a first principle is customer first. Maximizing value for shareholders. We and others talk about that a lot, but that's an abstract notion. What's best for my average customer? Yeah, exactly. If only it was so easy to know how you maximize long-run value for shareholders. You do it by doing the essence of what a business does. Customer, customer, customer. Now, I think you can get into, in the modern world, even in the tech world or whatever, you get a question of when you parse a distinction between the customer and the core user of your product. And more experienced minds than I, but I agree with them, would tell you that all else equal, if you put the user first that puts you in a better position even vis-a-vis your customer. Take Google's business model. Its user is the people who use its products for free. Put the user first. That was always at least used to be their mantra. And then the advertisers will follow. But that's a business strategy question, less of a normative question like the one you're asking. For the normative question you're asking, the spirit of this is, I would say, put the customer first, customer first, customer first, period. That's it. End all, be all, end of story. And then the subset of how you apply that in certain technical settings, the way you translate my version of saying customer first might actually mean user first. 
but that's a business strategy question that doesn't track the heart of what you're saying. I would say do whatever allows your business to most effectively provide products and services, excellent products and services to your customers, period. Nowadays, a lot of companies might be dealing with a significant, very small minority, but a loud voice of their employees who are trying to get them to do something. And it's never fun having your internal employees lobby for things. What would be your some of your advice to some of these big CEOs, whether it's Disney or there's a lot of famous examples of it where they have to deal with their own employees as well as lobby? Disney is a good example. I mean, Strive wrote a letter to Disney's board questioning the board's oversight of some of Bob Chappick's decisions. This is about a couple months before Bob Chappick then went on to be fired by their board, in part because of the stances that he took in buckling to the pressure of a small vocal minority of employees who pushed him to take a course of action that I think was decidedly the wrong course of action for the company to take. So definitely relevant, not only in Disney's case, but many CEOs have seen it land on their front door, including me, even in my old days as a biotech CEO. So here's what I would say is first, there's an empirical reality that's on your side. It doesn't answer the in theory hard case, but you probably never get to the in theory hard case because the pragmatic reality is there's an empirical fact that's on your side. There is no such thing as the voice of the employees. They're diverse. Diverse group. It would be a bizarre thing if there were a monolithic voice of the employees, especially running a big company operating in multiple parts of the country or world. And so what you usually find is that there's a disproportionate minority, maybe very small minority, that wields far more voice just because they're willing to than the employees who aren't. Here's another empirical reality that's on your side. Most of those employees are unlikely to be your most valuable ones. Not always true. There may be exceptions to that. But as a general rule of thumb, I don't think you're going to find a lot of people who have been in that seat pushing back on this, that the person who's causing something, post an anonymous post on Twitter as one of your employees and wants employees at the office to sign something. They're spending so much time on other stuff. I would say it's not even because. The causality might be the other way around, actually. The fact that they're doing it reveals their misalignment with the company's core purpose, that the company's purpose wasn't good enough for them. And then they happen to have enough time on their hands to take on all of this excess stuff. You run a company that, like mine, is more young than it is old, which is a compliment, but (laughs) that's hard work. And so if you've got that excess time and energy on your hands, that means you're probably not as invested in the company's own mission as you should be, let alone the best utility of your talents being directed towards signing some sort of corporate activist campaign within a company. There's are two observations right off the bat. A, it's not just a minority, it's probably a small minority of your employees. And the second is they're likely to be a small minority of your employees that are not amongst your most valuable. So that's already made the empirical reality of this make your decisions a lot easier. And you probably ignore them is the answer. And this is where leadership comes in. Leadership means not being a flag that waves in whatever direction the wind is blowing, or even worse, that you wrongly perceive the wind is blowing when the wind isn't blowing that way. I think it means actually being a stalwart that's committed to your own company's mission. And you as a CEO need to behave in a manner that demonstrates to others that you believe your mission is more important than whatever the social controversy of the day is as it pertains to your day job as a CEO. And so my answer would be less of a glib, bat it down and forget about the people who are raising that. Though I think there's an element of that that can be a practical formula that gets you 75% of the way there anyway. But even to empathetically get to the heart of what's really going on there. And I think often what's really going on there is you have generally younger, generally millennial or Gen Z employees who are hungry for a cause. 
They're hungry for purpose and meaning and identity. And we live in a moment where we've taught them that the way you satisfy your moral hunger is by going to Ben and Jerry's and ordering that cup of ice cream with some social justice sprinkles on the side. And that's how you fill your moral hunger. And the reality is you don't satisfy moral hunger with fast food. I said this in Woke Inc., my first book. You need something more substantial. And actually, less than faulting your employee who's going on whatever activist crusade they're going on, I'll tell you what I did. I looked myself in the mirror as a CEO and asked me what I was doing inadequately. Because you need to motivate them more to find that value at work. Exactly. Aligned around the mission of the company. And to me, that was an indictment of my own inadequacy in being a leader that fulfilled their hunger for purpose. That's something that I was in a position to do, but apparently had fallen short of. It was against the backdrop of George Floyd's tragic death. And it was an unusual circumstance in the country. But still, that means I wasn't doing a good enough job in my capacity as a leader around the mission that was supposed to unify our company. And so I think part of what I'm saying in terms of leading through the mission and not having to be whipsawed by a small vocal minority of employees that may not even be your most valuable one, that's a practical reality. But don't miss the opportunity to use it as a chance for introspection to be a better, more powerful, more motivating leader around your company's mission too, because that's what it's a symptom of too. And every symptom ought to be a calling, an opportunity. You've been outspoken in favor of free speech. What does that mean in the corporate setting? And what are some of these trade-offs? So I think a free speech in our capacity as citizens, that we should be free to speak our minds. I think we should live in a country where I think our country is best off if its citizenry is not only free to speak, but feels free to speak. What does that mean? So you don't want like the self-censorship and things like that. Yeah, the culture of self-censorship, the culture of using economic weaponry to silence people, the sense that an employee or a participant in the workforce might have that they have to choose between speaking their mind freely and putting food on the dinner table between the First Amendment and the American dream. At our best, I don't think we force people to make that choice. We can debate the legal implications of that. The free marketeers would say, well, the businesses have their right. I can go as deep as you want to into that and we can go there. But I'm just talking about as a matter of national character. To me, as an American, I would rather live in a country that did not force people to have to make that choice between their economic self-interest and what they said in their capacity as citizens than one in which people could thrive, both as workers, productive members of a workforce in the economy, but also do so in a way that allowed them to self-actualize as citizens by expressing themselves freely and to their fullest. And I think that culture of free speech is a precondition for truth. I think in the long run, it's a precondition for peace. If people feel like they can't speak up, that's when they start to scream. Or cause violence or something. When they tear things down, exactly. They resort to physical force instead. And I think that's not good. Do you think we've reached peak cancel culture or do you think it's still on the rise? Or where do you think we are on that curve? I think we've reached a steady state that is not the optimal steady state, but I think it's abated a little bit. Is it a low interest rate phenomenon in a way? Or? I think that there's some of that. I mean, if you look at Netflix and their 180 on what their employees' posture was supposed to be towards creatives at the company, that was on the back of a disastrous quarterly earnings report. And so it was no coincidence that it took a disastrous quarterly earnings report, profits, revenue, subscriber growth. It was all bad. And then they woke up and said, all right, well, they put excellence at the top of their cultural documents. And if you don't want to work on a project, we prize artistic merit. Close the door on your way out. 
that's an optimistic sign for our culture that a company that said Hollywood would say that, but it took economic hardship to get there. So I think there's some truth to the idea that it's a low interest rate phenomenon that we've been skiing on artificial snow for 15 years. The artificial snow machine just turned off. I think some of the economic hardship could be an opportunity for reviving cultural fortitude. But I also think that there's a muscle memory and sort of a win by a whimper, not winning with a bang, but with a whimper, that that became the new backdrop norm that people understand there's just certain things that you can't say. And that list is much longer today than it was 10 years ago, which is a shame for a new generation that joins the workforce, joins the economy, enters American adulthood, with that being the default status quo and norm. And so I think that we've reached a point where the seemingly inexorable juggernaut of censorious culture has, I think, been at least abated. And we've reached a new plateau and steady state but it's not the optimal one. And I think it's going to take some work to work our way back to the optimal. Part of your argument, I think, against things like ESG is that they're kind of a smokescreen and they're not really sincerely held beliefs by the company. How do you think that maybe is in conflict with the goal of maybe maximizing profits, et cetera? There's a lot going on there. It's why it'll take book length work. to. (laughs) I haven't told you this, but there's going to be my third book coming out this year in the spring, and it'll be specifically on ESG. I didn't know I had the book written in my head, but I did over the course of the first year of building Strive. And so put it into words and we'll announce that soon. You heard it on World of Das first. Yeah, 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 (laughs) why not? Exactly. (laughs) You've been an intellectual partner in this journey, bouncing ideas off you for the last couple of years now. So it would only be fitting. But sometimes it is arguably the value maximizing thing to do to play a particular game with virtue signaling. And that's a complicated case, and I can speak in my capacity as a citizen about it. But wearing my Strive hat, what we say is, we're not pro or anti-ESG, we're pro-excellence. And so if that means that a company is taking some long-run risk factor into account to address its long-run mission and value proposition for society, great. Nothing against that. I think what's happened in the last few years is there's been a funny little move in the debate, and the move is this. What began in 2008, post the financial crisis, and then supercharged in 2018 after Trump pulled out of the Paris Climate Accords, was this notion, authentic notion in many cases, that business leaders need to step up to fill the void to address what government itself did not address, climate change, et cetera. And if we don't, we're not going to have a planet left to inhabit. The Davos thesis is that the business leaders need to do what the governments won't do or something. Exactly. It begins, at least in the good-hearted version of it, in an authentic place. Fine. That's what this was about, is addressing what democratic politics could not be trusted to address. Now, the only problem with that, I mean, they would say, what do they say? Businesses have to then earn their social license to operate. Things like this. That's a direct Larry Fink quote. A lot of people, you know, Klaus Schwab, this is that worldview. They ran into a problem. The problem they ran into, especially if you're an asset manager or a financial institution, And by the way, if you're an asset manager or an asset allocator like a pension fund, you're not just a fiduciary, like a corporate director is to a shareholder. People use the word fiduciary too sloppily. You are a trustee. means you're squatting on someone else's cash, like their capital. You owe it to your pensioners to get them a good return. There's a term of law for this. You're bound by the sole interest rule. That is the highest standard known to the law. It's more prescriptive than the duty that a director of a company owes a shareholder Because directors, I think correctly, are owed broad business judgment latitude by the law. 
It's different if you're a trustee, and there's a reason why. You're literally holding someone else's money. They've entrusted you. You're the trustee of their capital. You're bound by the sole interest rule, which means you see, can't have any mixed motivation. So anyway, they ran into that problem where the Larry Finks of the world are saying, hey, business leaders need to step up. Well, lawyers whisper in ear, say, well, you can't quite do that. Or at least you can't quite say that because it has to be consistent with your obligations under the sole interest rule and trust law. So it's okay, okay, never mind what I said before. Actually, this is just about long-run value maximization. That's what this is about. It's about the long run. It's false. It gets fundamentally did not track the motivation. And so when you track why BlackRock voted for a racial equity audit at Apple last year, it has to be shoehorned into the language of value maximization when, in fact, Apple's board did not want to adopt that racial equity audit. When, in fact, the group that supported it did not say its objective was value maximization. It was holding companies like Apple accountable for their role in perpetuating white supremacy. That was the stated objective of the party who proposed the proposal that Apple didn't want to adopt, but BlackRock has to say it's about value maximization. Same thing with emissions caps or scope three emissions caps at Chevron in 2021. They vote for it, using the money of everyday citizens to do it. They have to say it's about long-run value maximization, but that's a farce. It's just not what the essence of the motivation is. And so we have this bastardized version of social discourse that has to joust in the language of value maximization when that wasn't even what it was about. Is there a point where there's just too much money that a company like BlackRock controls? They don't care about any given company. They don't care about Apple per se. As long as the broad index does well, they do well. Not even though, Arnon. As long as the broad index does no worse than their competitors. Correct. And by the way, if their other competitors track the same underlying index, by definition, they have the same performance. So they can bring the value of the whole thing down by a little bit. Now, why would they do that? We can come back to that in a little bit. But they're no the worse off because you can't measure it. They're better off because their business interests support it. Those business interests are doing business with CalPERS. Those business interests are doing business in China. We can talk about what those business interests are. So it's, I want to go to this bigness point. I think part of it is that they're too big. I mean, this is the largest concentration of capital in human history. It's just factually the case. And, and I think that creates certain awkward features that pervert free market competitive capitalism. The largest shareholders of like Apple and Microsoft, of Disney and Paramount, of, Exxon, of almost Microsoft, every public company. Of almost every public company. They're always like 10% of every company, right? Exactly. That sort of erodes this myth of free market capitalism when in fact there's the same parties controlling and pulling the strings, at least on these environmental and social questions of all these companies. So that's the bigness argument. But I think actually the more powerful argument goes beyond bigness is that they're representing clients whose interests are fundamentally divergent in a way that a good fiduciary, a good trustee cannot. So it's like being in a courtroom. If you're a vocal asset manager, it's like being in a courtroom as a vocal attorney representing the prosecution and the defense or even clients with divergent interests in the same case. When I went to law school, basic table stakes point of being a legal fiduciary is you can't represent clients with divergent interests. I think the same goes for asset management. I think it'd be pretty reasonable to say break up BlackRock, not in some sort of vindictive, antitrusty kind of way, though increasingly, I think there are powerful arguments for that. I'm coming from a different place, which says that you can't represent clients with different interests as a vocal fiduciary. So there are the people like CalPERS who want you to spout off about ESG. Great, do that. You made that commitment to them. But you can't drag everyone else along for the ride if everyone else wants to not have that viewpoint represented, but just to be focused on pecuniary value maximization or somebody else that wants Catholic values advanced or whatever. You can't represent value and values at the same time. 
And even if you're in the business of values, you can't represent different values at the same time. So there are multiple ways, multiple roads that lead you to the place that get you to the place that, yes, they're too big. But it's a sloppy armchair argument if you just say too big, break them up. That's not what I'm saying. It's far more specific. A lot of people know about BlackRock and why it's so powerful. Few people understand the power of ISS. Walk us through that. So ISS and Glass-Lewis. So they're the duopoly that has control in the market for proxy voting. What does that mean? It's such a complicated, intermediated system. But let's say you're not BlackRock and you're a different kind of fund manager. You as a fiduciary have to form a view on thousands of proxy votes that are shareholder proposals, executive compensation packages, et cetera, every year. And so what they do is they say, okay, we don't want to make those judgments internally because we're resource constrained to do that. Let's hand it over to the independents. Well, the independents are a duopoly of two firms, ISS and Glass-Lewis. They wield about 97% market share in this market. They're both foreknown. They both abide by the ESG orthodoxy when it comes to ESG-linked proposals, executive compensation packages that take into account ESG factors, not just traditional business factors. And so you don't really have competition in that marketplace of ideas either. To date, they've gone unnoticed. I'm personally shining a greater spotlight on the role they play in that marketplace today. And again, the monopoly here is not a monopoly on products per se. It's not that they like in the Rockefeller sense of this, they charge too much for their product. I think the problem is the monopoly on ideas. They punish the defector. It's a different kind of cartel. It's not quite the product cartel jacking price. It's a cartel of ideas. It's an ideological. It's a duopoly, but just like the Republicans and Democrats are duopoly as well, but at least they vote for different things. So you could potentially give your proxy to a Republican or a proxy for a Democrat. In this case, they're still voting for mostly the same thing. I assume they're almost always in lockstep. They really are. The deepest cynic of the political system on both sides, you would find people who would say that, well, that's just what the Republican Party and Democratic Party are too. I just think that that's probably not mostly true, but channel that deep cynical instinct that the cynic has of the uniparty or whatever they would call it in Washington, D.C. That is the real world here when it comes to the marketplace for proxy voting, ISS and Glass-Lewis. And it's not an accident why. I mean, there's a lot of social pressure to do it. Big capital actors I and mean, CalPERS, what, half a trillion dollars, just one actor. A lot of them have started saying, we won't do business with you unless you embrace the goals of the Paris Climate Accords, unless you embrace modern diversity, equity, inclusion standards, unless you embrace the climate. They have the right to do that. Well, I don't, this is so common. Alpers has the right to do that. Do you think because they're pension for they don't? I think it's a misuse of government power, which is why I often say this. It makes people mad when I say this, but this is not the invisible hand of the free market. It's just the invisible fist of government lurking behind the apparent invisible hand of the free market. Because Alpers is a government actor. I think there's a First Amendment violation embedded in there, using the money of pensioners to speak in ways that those citizens did not intend to. It's good case law on this. There's a case called Janus out of the Supreme Court, probably the most famous of them, but Heller is another, or Keller is another one. Basically, says that if you're a public employee union or if you're a state bar association, you can't use the dues to speak in ways that that person who paid the dues would disagree with. Well, pension fund plan participants, the only reason these pension funds are so big is these government employees, they don't have a choice. They have to contribute a certain amount of their wages to their own pensions. So if the pension fund's using that to engage in what's effectively political speech, I mean, that's a First Amendment violation. It's what they call in the law compelled speech. Government compelled speech. The government's forcing you to subsidize speech that you don't want to subsidize. So no, it's, that's, it's like the idea that this is just like the free market is a joke. I mean, these pension funds are not in any way, they're state actors throwing their weight around and what we delude ourselves into having to really squint with blinders on to call it the free market, reciting slogans we memorized in 1980 when it's not 1980 anymore. And I just think that's what makes this moment so complicated. 
these ETFs from BlackRock and Vanguard, they're essentially just commodities. Totally. Anyone can create them. It's completely open. There's some barriers to entry and whatever. I mean, or it's our business. You compete on price. It's a game that's historically been played out. You compete on price that's mostly played itself out. The risk return by definition is the same thing. Liquidity, part of the beauty of the ETF vehicle is the complicated mechanics of it. I can go into if you want, but it's as liquid as the underlying stocks if it's done well. And so that game is mostly played it out, but there's this invisible dimension of proxy voting and shareholder engagement that you have a one-sided cartel that's effectively wielded one set of ideas in the monopoly in the marketplace of ideas because part of the reason is the cultural pressure, part of the reason is personal ambitions of the people at top, but part of it is the CalPERS problem. It's not just CalPERS, it's large asset allocators upstream who made these businesses be signatories to the Climate Action 100 Plus Network, which by the way, is founded by CalPERS. Fun fact that not a lot of people knew. That's what creates the problem, but in every problem or almost every problem, there's an opportunity which is the opportunity to solve it, which is what we're trying to do at Strive. One of the things interesting about Strive is if someone had asked me a few years ago, oh, I want to build a ETF to compete against BlackRock, I'd be like, this is a terrible idea because they're a marketing juggernaut and they have very low fees and et cetera. You're basically saying, look, we're going to just give you the exact same product that they have is really the exact same product. We're just going to essentially allow you to vote those shares differently or think about those it's a subtler way of competing. And if you're in a commodity thing, you need something to do that. Is that the way you look at the you market? Say is it's competing on an axis, fine print aside, but it will compete from a business model perspective. Forget about the discussion of any given one fund or whatever, but just as a business model, competing on an axis where nobody in this line of business had competed before is this proxy voting and shareholder engagement differentiation, not even claiming to compete on the other attributes that the historical actors had competed on. And it turns out they've all are on one side of this question, all those existing competitors, and we're on a different side of it with respect to proxy voting shareholder engagement, putting excellence first. If it wasn't a commodity, oh, it'd be very hard. Then it becomes really hard. If like I got this cool software if you're trying to compete with Salesforce or something. Yeah. You know, in the early days of thinking about Strive, there was a temptation to solve for multiple variables at once. Because I think there is truth that there are market dislocations created by the ESG movement that create alpha opportunities to make money in return. And in our long-run business plan, believe that those are opportunities to pursue. But as you know well, focus is a formula for early success. And so we decided, okay, that's great. That exists. A lot of other adjacent opportunities. But let's focus on nailing this first. Build the brand, build a distribution strategy around it. And I'm happy to say it's early days and maybe this will succeed at a large scale and maybe it won't. But the early signs are that at least there's real demand for what we brought to the market. I think it took JP Morgan over two years to cross a billion in AUM when they entered the ETF business. And that's with all of their benefits of existing distribution and management, et cetera. That's a big firm. Strive with no pre-existing capabilities in the first three months or a little over crossed half a billion dollars. And, you know, the JP Morgan's billion after two plus years, it says less about anything brilliant or effective that we did. In fact, I can tell you from first-hand experience, there's a million things I would have done differently over the last year. And I think from an operational perspective and a hiring perspective and planning perspective, lots of things that I can take no credit for here, other than to say that there was real underlying demand for an alternative. And that's bottom up. And you have to exist for a certain amount of time before you're doing real business with pension funds, et cetera. We've only existed for months since our first fund launch. 
And that creates a foundation to see that to play in the big leagues, you're going to have to break into the pension fund channel into or other institutional channels. We'll see if we do. But that system is back to our regulatory capture and government capture point, captured by BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, and others like them. I will tell whether we're going to be able to break through that or not. But at least it's an early sign that if you show up with a differentiated angle, competing on an axis that nobody cares about, but still an axis that at least everyday citizens and capital owners cared about, there's at least a potential opportunity there. And your last company, Royvet, I love the idea. You're bringing promising drugs to market that were sitting on basically the shelves of these other companies taking out there and do that. Do you think there are other industries where that similar business model can be used? I appreciate Royvet even more now that I have some increasing distance from it. I'm really proud of what we built there. In the world. There's R&D sitting everywhere that's basically undercapitalized or underutilized. Lots of people have these great ideas, these great innovations. It's just not maybe the primary thing to push it. That can definitely be the case broadly, but the thing that makes pharma so fun <laughs> as a play field for this is it's such a regulated industry, an industry where the people who work in the industry mostly try to imitate their regulator. It's really weird. Even the titles in the managerial ranks in most farm organizations are modeled after their like companion titles at like the FDA. And then there's like a lot of horizontal movement between them too. This is sort of the culture of an entire industry that's like built around trying to imitate a federal bureaucracy in Washington, DC. And so Royvin was really born out of sort of the allergic reaction to managerialism in an industry. And part of managerialism is risk intolerance and conformity of behavior. And conformity behavior creates opportunity where sometimes they will have put literally hundreds of millions of dollars into the development of a drug or set of drugs. When the managerial dicta from the top is that that's not an area we're interested in anymore, they'll not pursue that. Now, sometimes, of course, that's often that's economically guided, but not always because there's that managerialism that's still guiding a different kind of invisible hand, the invisible managerial hand. And that's not really a market force in the sense that we think about pure market forces. It's a free market decision but often is made with instincts that weren't the ones that the Economics 101 textbook presumes. And that creates opportunity. So what do we do? We license the ones that look promising. It's a probability game. Some will succeed, others will fail. Years in, five FDA-approved products that I had the chance to oversee, $3 billion deal, returned a billion dollars or whatever it was before is a private company. Now it's a multi-billion dollar public company that is actively developing drugs in a wide range of areas, one that it's launched itself, another set of drugs that have been launched by another company that bought a set of drugs that it acquired in a $3 billion deal with Voivin. That wouldn't have happened without a market actor being willing to take advantage of an opportunity created by this managerialism in healthcare and in pharma. And I think the lesson for other industries, which is the most important point of this is, Find an area where you see the managerial class running the show. Take a hammer to that managerialism, and almost certainly you will find some opportunity lurking inside. Whether that's a shelved project as it shows up in pharma, I think that will show up in that form sometimes. But the lesson is a little deeper than that, and that's why I sort of tell the story. Interesting. A couple of personal questions. There's an Ohio Senate race in 2024, and I see on Twitter a lot of people are trying to get you to run for that. There's like a lot of news speculation about it too. I am not going to run for the Ohio Senate seat. Okay. If I was going to do that, I probably would have done it in 2022 when I thought about it more seriously. Life is life. I will never say actually never because who knows how you'll fear in the future version of yourself. I could just 
pretty certainly tell you I'm not going to run. Good to know. All right. Another news that we've made on World of Deaths. That's great. And the last question we ask all of our guests, what conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? I'm thinking of a couple things. So I'm not sure I'm going to give you the best answer. I may need more time to think of the best That's answer. That's right. I can think of an answer. There's this expression that's like really popular right now in like management circles of like servant leadership. I don't think that that's dead wrong, but I think it's become conventional wisdom. And I think it's the wrong way to think about leadership, actually, especially the moment we're in. It's kind of like a lead from behind in a way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think our moment right now, it might be different 10 years ago, it might be different 10 years from now, but I think our moment right now calls for leading from the front. And so servant leadership is not actually what the people who you want to lead demand. The people who say it, say it because they think it lands well on the ears of the people they lead. And maybe it lands well in their ears, but it doesn't land well actually in what their gut hungers for. The Steve Jobs analogy of what a product is to a customer is what I think of as a leader represents to their employees. You have to show them what they want. And I think that's what it means to be a leader particularly of a company right now in the current. Why do you think this phrase servant leader is so popular right now? Because I do hear it all the time. It's like not the best answer to your question, but it's just it come up a lot. So it's on recently. I think it's the byproduct of the same culture that gave us the politicization of corporate America that believed that there's this apologist model of capitalism. I think there's an apologist model of Americanism right now to the idea that every one who succeeds has to apologize for their success in some way because it was inevitably the product of some privilege that was unearned. Take the social valence of that debate and put it to one side because that's not what we're talking about right now. I think it just leads to sort of bad decisions and bad approaches to management, bad approaches to leadership. When in fact, when a pendulum is swung so far in one direction, it creates an opportunity to really lead people for something that they're missing in the wake of that cultural monolith. And to me, that is leadership with conviction instead of servant leadership. I think that servant leadership and leadership with conviction are fundamentally incompatible with one another. They're not the opposites of one another, but they're just incompatible with one another. And so I think that I would advise you to buck the trend of servant leadership and to embrace the idea of leadership with conviction. And I think that runs against the conventional wisdom. Yeah, it definitely does. That's super interesting. This has been great. Thank you, Vivek Ramaswamy, for joining us at World of Das. I follow you at Vivek G. Ramaswamy on Twitter. I definitely encourage our listeners to engage with you there. I really appreciate it. Thanks, man. I appreciate it, too. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das, and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you.